So, Father, again this morning, <laughs> it's not the morning, uh, it's the evening. And, God, whether it's morning or evening like that devotion, God, we can come to you and seek you and praise you. And uh, God, this, this evening, God, may you be lifted up, God. Uh, Lord, is they worship you 24-7 in heaven. It doesn't matter when it is because there is no time. It's eternity, God. Help us prepare us for that. Prepare us in this life for the next life, God. Use us in this life to bring others to you, that they might see you and might be ready for the next life, God. There's, this world is doesn't seem like there's much longer left yeah. in it, but as long as you allow it to go on, God, may you bring glory to your name through us and through your people, through your church, and but most certainly by your spirit, God, and through your word, God. May you lift the sun up that all men might be drawn unto him, God. So, God, we look to you this evening uh, for all that you are and, and who you are. Uh, not for your miracles, for everything you do is a miracle, but for who you are. God, let us see you in the midst of our circumstance and situation, and let us uh, stand up and do, uh, God, what's necessary in those things. God. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Bless us, we pray, God. Amen. 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 So we're uh, picking up in Genesis 14. And the title of today's message is, Blessed Be Abram. Of God Most High, blessed be Abram, of God Most High. But obviously, this is we're continuing our study of the relationships between God and man, God and people, and we've spent a, a deal on Abram, and we're going to continue in there uh, today. We saw last time weeks ago with all the sickness and all the winter and everything else going on. It's uh, probably been a month about, um, no. right? But we've seen the life. Of Abram, we've seen him go from his father's house to the wilderness. If you remember, he went down to Egypt. He kept going through the wilderness when the situation was bad. And he ended up in Egypt and in trouble, and yet God still got him out of that. Um, and he went back to where God last spoke to him at the terebinth trees of Mamre. And from the last study in thirteen, we saw that he truly, I believe, turned to the Lord at this point. That he had heard the call of the Lord. He had begun to follow God. But that relationship with the Lord wasn't quite fully there yet. And I feel like after last chapter, his relationship, he, Abram gets it now. I think that happens a lot of us in our faith. We come to the Lord, we walk for him for a while, but then all of a sudden, something happens. We, God finally gets our attention all the way through, and we realize we just need to do everything God's way. We can't do some of it his way and some of it our way. It's got to be all his way, because his way is the best way. And I think Abram got it at that point, that that God was the one who was in charge, and that's the only one Abram needed. It's one thing to follow God, and I think a lot of Christians do that today. A lot of people who would call themselves Christians are Christians. Some who, who call themselves Christians aren't. I think sometimes you look at our own lives, you might even look at your own life at certain seasons and go, if I was somebody else, I might not even call myself a Christian by my behavior. But to follow him is one thing, but it's another to be a true disciple, to keep following him, to learn, to grow, but also to bring others to faith. That our faith doesn't stop and start at us coming to faith, but it continues on through our growing in faith, but also others would come to faith. Um, and that's what it means to be a true disciple, is to follow God no matter what circumstance or situation comes our way. And we've seen Abram begin to go through this. We've seen him be blessed at every turn because he didn't have to be perfect because God is perfect. Abram was blessed even in Egypt when he was giving his wife away to Pharaoh to save his own life. God said, no, 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 I'm, I've got a plan here and I'm going to provide for you, Abram. I know you don't totally get it yet. And I know that God is patient with us, right? Yeah. And he doesn't expect us to get it all right away, that he wants us to grow up and do better. Um, but he'll, get, he'll, get, he'll reach us. He'll get us out of trouble from time to time when it's necessary. And other times, so let us go through that trouble that we might have an opportunity to seek him. But today, as we get into chapter 14, uh, we're going to go through the whole chapter. I think we're going to see a change in Abram's life, and we're going to see something that goes on in Lot's life, and, and really how their position plays a big role um, in how their lives play out. Um, and the difference between Abram's life some other people in this chapter and Lot's life as well. But let's read uh, the first nine verses of chapter 14 together, if you have your Bible. Um, Genesis 14, verse 1, it says, And it came to pass in the days of 
uh, Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, Shedalomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations. Nice try, Tyre, and take that title there, title. Uh, but that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, and I don't take my pronunciations here on this one, uh, <laughs> if you ever try and repeat these names, but uh, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemabur, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these joined together in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they served Shedalomer, and the thirteenth year they rebelled. And the fourteenth year Shedalomer and the kings that were with him came and attacked the Rephaim and Ashtoreth Karnim and the Zuzim and Ham and Emim of Shava Kirithim. None of this has been English so far. And the Horites in their uh, mountain of Seir, as far as El Paran, uh, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and attacked all the country of the Amalekites and the Amorites, who dwelt in uh, Hazazon Tamar. And the king of Sodom, verse 8, and the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, went out and joined together in battle in the valley of Sidon against Shertolomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of nations, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Eleazar. Four kings against five. And we'll stop there. A lot of names, a lot of places. We're not going to get into the nitty-gritty on exactly where these guys are from or what their names mean. I'm sure there's some good stuff in there. But we're going to take this as just kings being kings. A bunch of kings getting together. One king was over them. They were under them for 13 years. And at one point, they decided they're going to rebel. And this is, I think, um, a, a foreshadowing in a sense of what happens in the last days. Because we see that when the final world ruler uh, comes on the scene, the Antichrist comes on the scene, he does have an alliance. And the alliance lasts for a while. But then we'll see some of the horns decide to break off. And there's um, rebellion. And even that kingdom can't even stand. Um, but really, kings, what do kings do? They like to make war. That's what they do. Kings are about being a king. You're a king. I'm powerful. Hey, I'm titled king of the nations. You know, this guy, they come up with all sorts of titles for themselves. This is not the case even in the world. Even in the business world, everyone has a title. And, you know, my title at work is front-end specialist. I don't even know what that means. But, you know, <laughs> I'm titled king of nations. You know, every king has got to have his own uh, throne and build up his own reputation somehow with this title. Uh, but everyone was trying to be the best, trying to be the most powerful. They end up going into war against each other because, well, they want what each other have. They want to take over each other's kingdoms. We even see a guy like Alexander uh, of the Greeks who, by the time he was 30, had taken over the known world. This guy was cunning and he went out and what does he do? He goes and takes over everything he can. And we see that even in the modern day. Businesses buying out other businesses because they want more and they want more and they want more power more money and influence. And, and that's what kings do. They make war. And even in uh, later on with King David, it says, in the springtime, at the times king go out to battle, David stayed back, we, we read. You know, that springtime, all right, the thaw is done. All right, let's go out and see who we can conquer and beat up and make subject to ourselves this year. Um, you know, that's what happens with power. Um, absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? But power always wants more power. And that's why God instructs us to not seek after it. You know, there's three things that can bring down a man. It can be uh, women, power, and I think the third one is money, if I remember correctly. But power is a big one. Um, power, you know, once you get a taste of it, you just want more of it. You know, look at government. How often does the government want to give back any of its power? Uh, very rarely. But it says, uh, you know, these guys were tribal kings. Um, probably like it's similar to Abram, but they ruled over a territory. Abram wasn't ruling really a territory, but they were rich. They had power, um, uh, but they were very invested in their own domain. You know, kings have kingdoms, and they're all about that kingdom when they are reigning. But they met down at the Salt Sea, or the Dead Sea. This is east of Jerusalem. Um, it's interesting that that's where they meet, a place called the Dead Sea, where all these kings go out to war. But like I said, they served another king, and then they rebelled. And that's the same thing with worldly alliances. They only last so long. Allies in life only go so long. Uh, we were allied with Russia and then we were against them and they were against us during the Cold War. And now supposedly, you know, we we're supposed to be friendly, but now we're fighting each other in Syria. Um, you know, we see proxy wars with communism and democracy throughout history and 
Korea and Vietnam and Afghanistan and now Syria. We see Israel and Iran and everyone going to war over there. It's, it's getting serious again. Um, and worldly peace only lasts so long. The world cries out for peace, but how long does it really last? You know, we all cry for peace on the highway, but how long until you're honking at that person in front of you? You know, it's, it's only so long before these things fall apart. Uh, when Congress tries to make a law and try to do things, you know, bipartisan, how long does that really last? Well, it only lasts as long as it's expedient for themselves. But it says that they went by the wilderness. You know, I believe they started uh, encroaching on perhaps where Abram had been settled and perhaps where he had gone through. They had gone going out and they got to this part where there was nothing worth taking, so they kind of stopped there. That's kind of where the world goes. The world go, will go as far as it needs to go to get what it wants, but it won't go any further. It won't venture out any further. I remember when I first moved up to New York State, it was all the wilderness to me. I didn't know where anything was, and I would venture out only so far and think, oh, there's nothing beyond there, and then turn around and go home because I didn't think it had anything for me. And yet when I got saved, God revealed that there was plenty more beyond that mental boundary of mine that was mine to inherit so to speak like the goshen diner and <laughs> middletown and the galleria mall and inherited all the fun that i had there um but it's four kings against five in this valley it was a showdown and again it rings a bell of the last day's battle nowhere near in scale but it's interesting history repeats itself you know there's all these little things that go on like in the new testament you read that the spirit of the antichrist is already here and it's already working in the world that you know, world leaders that we see come up are just types and pictures of this final world leader in the flesh. And the same thing is happening here. There's nothing new under the sun. You know, if you see something happening and going on, be sure it's happened before. If you're going through something in life, be sure someone else has gone through it. And you've probably gone through a different version of it. And you're just going to go through another version of it later on in life. A lot of times God brings us through something in life. We learn from it, and then six months later, we'll go through the same type of situation, only bigger. And hopefully we've learned our lessons so that we can go through that one as well. But the battle, I believe, and from what I've experienced, is always in the valley. You know, that in Star Wars, I have the high ground, Anakin. You know, the guy on the high ground always wins the battle. If you're trying to shoot uphill, it's very hard as opposed to the guy who's at the top of the hill trying to shoot down at you. Um, the battle is always in the valley. Psalm 23, a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me. In the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. A great psalm. Matthew 17, 1 through 9. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with them. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, do not be afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. You know, we see in Scripture that the mountaintop experience, we see it over and over in different types and patterns, that the experience is wonderful. It is good. We end up seeing Jesus a lot of time for who He is on that mountaintop experience in life. When things are good, when we've gone up and we've gone hiking to the top of the hill and we look down throughout the valley of New Jersey, you know, and we see how good it is. Um, and not knowing all the things. We know that God is good there and in good times. And a lot of times these mountaintop, mountaintop experiences come after a wilderness. We've gone through a hard season, a tough season, a dry season, then God leads us up somewhere to show us and to refresh us and to speak to us. Um, and Abram had that, I believe, when he met with God under the tree again. 
after Egypt and, and the Terebin tree in Mamre. I'm not saying that it was a mountain there, but I'm saying that it was a mountaintop experience, that he came up out of the wilderness, back to where God had called him and God had spoken to him and told him that this is the land that I'm giving to you and your descendants, um, where Abram truly started following. But what happens next, what we're about to read next, I don't believe Abram would have been prepared for if he had not gone back to the tree. If he had not gone back to where he met with God and heard from God. Because going up to the mountain is essential, but we cannot stay there. Like the disciples, we'll build you a tent, God. You know, we can hang out here. God doesn't even address it. He just says, listen to Jesus, hear Jesus. But they had to go back down to the valley and they couldn't talk to it. Uh, they couldn't speak of what they, they said on the mountain just yet. It wasn't time yet. And, uh, but we must be ready to come back down, ready for what's next. That when God brings us up on a mountain, it's to refresh us, it's to speak to us, but it's always to prepare us for that next season. Because that next season, most likely, is a valley. Because when you go up at one side of a mountain, you come down, well, you're probably in a valley before the next mountain. God wants to prepare you. Is the best place to get prepared for the valley is on the mountaintop, is before the valley. You don't want to get prepared in the valley. That's too late. You want to be prepared before it. Proverbs 6, 6 through 11 says, Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise, which having no captain, overseer, or ruler, provides her supplies in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. How long will you slumber, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep, so shall your poverty come on you like a prowler and your need like an armed man. And this verse comes to mind to me every morning that I lay in bed and don't want to get up. And what do I want to do? I want to do this with my hands, fold them on my chest. Like, oh, this is comfortable. It's so good to be in this nice warm bed. And this verse comes to mind. I go, I have to get up. <laughs> but being prepared is essential in life. It is the best way to survive. It is truly the only way to survive. And even the animals know it. The little chipmunks and squirrels begin to go out there and collect all the things that hide them for the winter. Those nasty stink bugs know that winter is coming and they try and come in your house to hide from the winter and be ready and hibernate for the spring. I wish the stink bugs were not, as, were not so willing to be prepared for the winter. I wish they were dumb and they would, would stay outside and die. But somehow today... We think, at least in our culture, I, don't, I can't speak to other cultures because I haven't lived there, we don't need to be prepared. That we can wing it in our drive-through, Amazon Prime, throwaway society. That, oh, there's a storm coming. I'm going to go get my milk and bread. And the store clears out of milk and bread. And none of us need milk and bread. But the heart is that all of us realize that we're not prepared. And so we go by the two things that come to us. Milk and bread, milk and bread. But is that really going to help you through a storm? I mean, it might, but how long is milk really going to last? And is milk and bread what you really want? And when I go for a forest storm, I get some chocolate. I get some Doritos. You know, I want to be really prepared for that storm. I want to, if I get a generator, it's to keep my Netflix going. <laughs> Even though I just cancel Netflix because it's way too <laughs> Another story. But somehow we don't think we need to be prepared. But if we're not prepared for what's next, we're going to have a hard time surviving through it. And to be honest, we might not make it at all. That's obvious in the physical world. Even though we don't pay attention to it, how much more is it in the spiritual world? If we're not prepared spiritually, how do we expect to make it through? There's no five and you know dollar store uh, spiritually that we can go to and get the supplies on the way home. Proverbs twenty two three says, "A prudent man foresees evil and hides himself, but the simple pass on." are punished. That when a prudent man, a wise guy says, oh, there's some bad times ahead. There's some wicked people up the street. I'm going to go this way. Or I see that there's a war coming. I'm going to prepare myself. Or like Joseph, when God gives him the interpretation of the dream for Pharaoh, there's seven good years coming. And then after that, there's seven bad years. But those seven good years are going to be so good, it's going to provide not only for Egypt, but for the whole world for those seven years. But it took a man who loved God and who was in tune with God for them to heed that warning. Pharaoh had no idea what it meant. The wisest people in, I in Egypt had no idea what it meant. And they would have all died if God had not brought Joseph there for that very reason. To save those people. To save his family. But when we see potential danger ahead, 
it is wise to avoid it. It is not wise, it is not brave to just lock the door and keep driving through that rough spiritual neighborhood, so to speak. Avoid it. If you have to go through it, go through it. But if you're wise, don't go down that road. Oh, this person is flirting with you at work. Don't go down that road. Oh, this you have this opportunity to cheat on your taxes? Don't go down that road. So that audit will come. Avoid it. And I think that that's half of parenting. Probably 85%. I don't want to give too much credit because love is a big part of parenting. It's the foundation of parenting. But it's really teaching kids how to see danger before it happens. Don't jump on the couch because I see the danger of you eventually slipping and falling and smacking your head on the ground. You don't see that danger yet. But I see it before it's happened because it's probably happened to me. <laughs> or, you know, I can just see it because I just see the medical bills. After, you know what I mean? I see, you know, I see all sorts of things. But more than that, I don't want them to get hurt. And that's why I want to teach them to learn how not to get hurt without me having to tell them. It's a major factor, I believe, in our self-check and our own maturity. Physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, all above. If we can look at our own lives and say, are we avoiding that danger? Are we jumping on the couch? Are we standing on the table spiritually, so to speak, and not paying any attention to what will happen when inevitably we do slip? Because we're not on solid ground. Because to think that it can't happen or it won't happen to us is foolhardy. It's foolishness. It will happen to you. It happens to everybody. That there's not one temptation in, 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 in life that hasn't happened to somebody, hasn't happened to everybody. Everybody's been subject to something else at one point or another. But God doesn't want us to be unprepared. God wants us to know ahead of time what's going to happen, but that only happens by spending time with Him in the Word. By spending time with Him where He wants us to spend time with Him. Because you know what? In my life, there's been times when I spend time with God and God's warning me about situations that are happening or He's let me know about hard things that are going to happen in my life. And when they happen, I go, oh, this is what God meant. And I was somewhat prepared. I didn't handle it perfectly, but I was somewhat prepared. There's been other times when I've been slacking in my time with the Lord and not as opposed to checking off a box, but just haven't been as close to my Father as I should have been. And something will broadside me and I'll get tripped up and do something. And God will be like, I was trying to tell you. I know you heard me. And I remember hearing him going, why didn't I just listen? Because I was foolish. Because I thought I could go on my own way. thought I could handle it myself. But I can't. Matthew 25, the ten virgins. Some of them, are wait they're all waiting for the bridegroom to come and the wedding to start. Some of them go out and buy extra oil. The others, well, when the bridegroom comes, they try and go find the 24-hour Walmart. They finally find it. They finally get their oil, but they get there and they're not allowed in. God wants us to be prepared, guys. Most of all, spiritually, for the next life, for, for heaven, for his return. And if we're not prepared for his return, there's nothing else we can do. When he comes back, that's it. There's no second chance. But more than that, God wants to be prepared for this life as well. That's the spiritual principle that should have physical uh, fruit in it. Because he loves us to give us a heads up. But again, that only comes for willing to spend time with Him when things are good. How often do we scramble and turn to God when things are bad? If we had maybe turned to Him when things are good, when things were easy, so to speak, we would have been prepared for when things are bad and we wouldn't be in a scramble, we wouldn't be in a hurt, we wouldn't be in a bind like we might find ourselves if we, if we didn't spend time with Him then. Cry out to God, not just in the valley, but cry out to Him before the valley. Cry out to Him on the mountaintop. Verse 10, let's read 10 through 12. It says, Now the valley of Siddim was full of asphalt pits or tar pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods, and departed that they went to this valley, it was full of asphalt or slime, uh, fountains. You know, the word has several meanings there. Um, but think of like La Brea tar pits or other places where there's hot springs and just it's just a nasty place. It's a mucky place. Um, uh, I remember reading Pilgrim's Progress. I don't remember if I finished it or not, but I should probably pick it up again. But at one point, finds this guy Christian and going through these like tar pits. This, he gets the slow and it's like dragging him down and he's getting stuck in it. Um, and that can happen in our lives. You know, we walk into the proverbial quicksand. We see in the cartoons that, 
you walk in and you begin to sink and you can't and the more you struggle the more you get stuck in it and like the key is to be calm there but this wasn't a good valley for these kings to fight in and perhaps some of the kings knew that and they led them there but they ended up dying they ended up getting stuck they ended up losing this war here uh, a lot of them begin to die the rest begin to flee and the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and of this region are left defenseless because of bad planning, of bad preparation, of probably just being emotionally, oh, let's go out to war and get them and whatever it was. But these battles and losses also come right before the end for Sodom and Gomorrah. God was trying to show them something here too, I believe, that they need to be dependent on him. Because soon enough, we'll know, we know their end. We read on the next few chapters. We see that Lot and his family end up fleeing Sodom and Gomorrah when God brings judgment on them. But Lot, who had looked towards prosperity and the world provision, we remember that his servants and Abram's servants were getting in fights, and so they decided to split ways. Abram tried to make peace. Lot chose the good-looking land near uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, so Lot goes down there. Um, but now he finds himself captive of the enemy. His worldly protectors are nowhere to be found. Remember how God told Abram to leave Lot behind in Ur? Remember how heartless that sounded at the time? Maybe God knew better. Maybe God knew that Lot was going to do all these things. I knew God knew because God knows the end from the beginning. He said, Lot would be better back here in Ur. He's going to get himself in trouble if he comes with you, Abram. And that's the same thing when the world where people try and come along spiritually where they're not prepared for they're going to get themselves in trouble. And they try and bring inheritance on themselves. God knew Lot would get himself in trouble, but God was also watching out for Lot. And sometimes we ask, why does God choose this person or that? Why did God choose me? Choose me, Or why did God choose them to go through that? Why did God choose me to get this sickness or this disease? Or why did God choose them to, to, to have what I want in life? And, and how come I don't have it? Or why does God not want my relationship to work? I've been trying to make this relationship work and it's not working. How come I can't get ahead in life? How come I... Whatever the case may be. Or why does God call me to do this? It doesn't make sense. I don't understand God. Like the song we say, let go of your heart, let go of your mind, you know? Not that we're going to be foolish or not that we're going to not have feelings. But God's ways are higher than our ways. We'll never understand them all. Maybe we can understand them a little bit, but we don't have to. God does. Or why would God call me here? Why would God put me in this situation? I'm sure Joseph said that for many years until, ah, interpret Pharaoh's dream. Save these people. Save my family. Keep this nation alive. God sees everything. He knows the end from the beginning. And his direction is right. Even if we can't see why or how. Verse 13 says, Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew. So one guy gets away from everything that's going on and runs and finds Abram. He knows of Abram. For he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of uh, Eshcol, brother of Aner, and they were allies with Abram. You know that Abram was still dwelling by terebinth trees at Mamre. This guy who was a wanderer, a wilderness wanderer, a nomadic people, he goes by a tree of God to this place with these guys, and he stays there, where he heard from God and met with God. And Abram knew to dwell where God was meeting with him. Remember the Garden of Eden? Isn't that what God wanted for Adam and Eve to dwell with them and to meet with them there regularly and have a place where they could meet? God didn't want them to leave, and that he knew that if they ate from that tree, they would leave. So Abram knew that this is the place he wanted to be, where he heard from God. And that's where we should want to be. Wherever we're hearing from God, that's where we should want to be. In our personal time, in our devotion, in church, if we're hearing from God, that's where we should be. If we're not hearing from God, we need to ask ourselves, why not? Is there some sin? Am I doing something wrong? Did God tell me to do something and I'm not doing it? I can tell there's been times in my life when it feels like, I know I'm doing the right thing, so to speak, as far as I'm spending time with the Lord, I'm going to church, I'm doing these things where I'm supposed to hear from God, but I'm not hearing from God. And there's just an echo in my mind of God giving me an instruction to do something in the past and I haven't done it. Well, I can't expect to hear from him if I'm blatantly being disobedient, not going back and doing what he's told me to do. 
you know, I'm not going to read it for time. You know it. But in Luke 2, 42 through 52, when uh, they go to Jerusalem uh, for the feast uh, with Jesus and his family, and they, they leave Jerusalem, they assume that he's with them, but he's not, and they can't find him. And he's like, oh, didn't you know I had to be about my father's business? Didn't you know I'd find me at temple, mom and dad? I'm Jesus. <laughs> this is where I'm going to be. And they didn't, they didn't get it. It says they didn't, they didn't get it at that time. But Jesus knew where he had to be. And that was at his father's house. And, and so too we should know that we need to be at our father's house. Because in our father's house, our father has everything we need. He was doing God's business. And Abram was doing the same. Just like the Lord, he was where God was in his life. And people should know that they can run and find us in God's house. People should know that they can go, oh, Abram's in God's house. Abram's at the cherubim trees. He's always there. That's where he's going to be. People should know that's where we're going to be Sunday mornings. That's where we're going to be about our lives. That when they come to us, that we can be trusted. That we can give them godly advice because we've been spending that time with God. That we have provision for them spiritually and physically because God has what? Prepared us for it. That we've spent the time we need to with God. Second Corinthians says that God uh, comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble, that if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer, that we go through sufferings and hardships, that God might reveal himself to us, that we might then reveal God to others. It's never just a, it's never a punishment, it's never a hardship to be mean to us, so always get us to meet with God and from that to meet others with God. And if it's because of our own wrongdoing, it's to warn other people to not do what we did. But if it has nothing to do with our doing like a sickness or something else, a hardship comes on us, it's that we might minister to others because they don't know God. And we're going through a hard time. If you don't know God, what do you have? You don't have anything. But we have the one thing that they can't conjure up, that no psychologist, no medication, no job, no drug, no anything We'll make up for a God who's living, who's greater than that. But God comforts us so that we can comfort others. That we go through the wilderness, through the valley, God will strengthen us and prepare us through those times to minister to others. That we can go, oh, I've been through that valley, brother. It's not exactly the same, but I know that God was there with me. Why do you think we find the Psalms so comforting? Because David went through them. The psalmist went through them. And now we can turn and receive the comfort that he himself received from God in the scripture. But we can only do that if we've allowed God to first minister to us. Only then will we be in the right place to hear the call for help. To give them exactly what they need. Not our own advice. Not our own speculation as to why it's gone through or what it must be like to go through those things. But to give them only what God has given us when we went through it. When I've gone through hard times and people try to share things with me, when it was a really hard time, I know they meant well, but it was like, please, just don't even bother. Like, it's, it's not helping. It's hurting. But when others would come to me and share with me, like, brother, I've had the same thing in my life. I've been there. I know what you're going through. They didn't have to say anything. They could just sit with me. They could just talk to me. They could just listen to what I had to say and it meant more because I knew that they knew exactly the way it felt. And we need that. It was a saying, let me give you a nickel's worth of free advice. Well, I don't need your nickel's worth of free advice. I need to know what God has to say. I need to know that, that God knows. And he does. But we see that Abram's allies, his friends, were those who were by the tree, who dwelt where he dwelt, who hung out where he hung out, who were into the things that he was into. They were his neighbors. He was being a good neighbor and friend to those around him. And they were to him. Now, it doesn't necessarily say that these guys followed the Lord. It doesn't necessarily say that they wanted godly things, but they saw something in Abram, and they were related to him. I have friends in the world who are friendly about the things of God, who are not opposed to the things of God. And I embrace that. I'm friends with them. I'm friends with people who don't like God either, but it's... We need to be a good neighbor, like State Farm. We need to be there. 
You know, we have neighbors. We were good neighbors to each other and found out that they go to an, another church. Like, that's fantastic. But I want to be a good neighbor to my neighbors because they're my neighbors. We live in the same area. It's just smart to be a good neighbor. And I've been in a situation where I've tried to be a good neighbor. I've tried to be a good neighbor. I've been the best neighbor I can. And finally, it's just, well, I've done as much as I can. And again, I don't know these guys were believers, but they hung around where? They hung around where Abram had built an altar. And when we have altars in our life, other people will start hanging around there. They'll start hanging around where we hang around and, and maybe they'll get a taste of God. Maybe they'll get that leftover smell of the altar in our lives. I hope so. Maybe they'll make it their altar. Verse 14 says, Now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his four... Again, this is Moses writing about, you know, they know where the tribes live at that time, so it's, it's, it's to them. That's why he uses those terms. But he says, He divided his forces against them by night. He and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So he brought back uh, all the goods, and he also brought back his brother Lot and all his goods, as well as the women and the people. It's an interesting part of scripture because it says, Now when Abram heard his brother was taken captive. We just read, and we've read several times before, that Lot is Abram's brother's son, his nephew. But here he says, when Abram heard his brother. You know, Abram treats Lot like he would his own brother. His flesh and blood, who he grew up with, who they got married around the same time and ended up dying. He treats him just like his own brother. He doesn't treat Lot like a distant relative. Treats Lot as his brother. 1 Corinthians 12, 2, 25-26 says, For as the body is one, as many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members get mad and jealous. No, all the members rejoice with it. When one hurts, all hurt. You know, even though Lot was doing his own thing, even though Lot pursued the best in his own life and wanted the, you know, potentially took the better land, so to speak, from Abram, Abram didn't hold it against him. He had no ill will. He knew that God was a provider. And he loved his nephew like a brother. We need to do that as believers. We need to love each other because we're brothers, because we're sisters, because we're family of God. What did Jesus say in John 15, 13? I've probably read this to you before. It says, Greater love is no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Well, what about your brother? Would you lay down your life for your brother? Matthew 12, 47 through 50, one said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. But he answered and said to the one who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand towards his disciples and said, Here, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. That if we're in the family of faith, we're brothers and sisters. And we need to live like it and love like it and and family get in fights from time to time. And family has tight emotions sometimes. But we need to do the most we can to seek peace. And to protect and stand up for our family. And not cause dividing and, in, and infighting. You know, this was a message earlier about that we're all the temple of God. And how often do you take a sledgehammer and we're starting to hit the temple of God? Why do we beat each other up? Is it because we're acting like kings in the valley? Maybe. But what I love is that Abram doesn't delay. Right away, he hears his brother has been taken. He takes up arms. He takes his 318 trained servants born in his own house. As soon as Abram hears, he goes. That's preparation. That's because he was prepared. If he wasn't prepared, it would take him six months to gather everything. You know, like you watch war, you watch uh, all the fleets moving out to the Pacific to go over by North Korea and China. It takes time to prepare for that war. They're preparing now because as soon as they have the, the okay to go, they want to be ready to go. Or as soon as something happens, they need to be right there. And so they're not wasting time to be prepared. But he was at the tree, spending time with God, and he was ready to go at a moment's notice. That's obedience. Delaying is disobedience. To delay when God calls us to go, when, to delay when there's obviously a need in front of us, especially when it's our brother, is disobeying. It says that he takes up arms. This means that Abram had weapons. 
takes time to make weapons. Abram had weapons. He had the gear. He had prepared for war before there was war. He wasn't arming himself to take what he wanted like the kings in the valley, but he was armed to defend those he loved and to stand up for what was right. How few of us are willing to stand up for the truth, to defend what is right, to speak up like the scripture says for those who have no voice to speak for them. You know, a friend at work, she goes to the Right to Life March every year. I think that's awesome. It's fantastic. But either spiritually or physically, are we willing to do that? I think in a lot of times, it always becomes someone else's problem. Oh, it's not really my deal. Oh, the pastor can do that. Or, oh, they can do that. Or, oh, this denomination. Or, oh, that's their responsibility. Uh, it's not really my problem to deal with that. But when that happens, it really becomes everyone's problem. The Bible matters. The rule of law matters. Right and wrong matters. The Constitution matters. It's not someone else's job to stand up for the truth. We are the people of the truth. The people of Puerto Rico stand up with the Puerto Rican flags because they're the people of Puerto Rico. If we are the people of the truth, we should be standing up for what? The truth. The truth. But we're not. And if we don't, who will? The answer is no one. In fact, the answer is someone will stand up for what they claim to be the truth, and they will win the war, and we will lose the war. They will come for your guns. They will come for your free speech. They are already. And then they will come for your Bibles. And they will come for your loved ones. Oh no, pastor, that can't happen in America. Well, why not? Happens in Canada, happens in Australia, happens in Nazi Germany, happens in China, happens in Africa, happens in the Middle East. They're lighting up buildings red uh, in, uh, in Europe to stand up for Christian persecution, for Christians who are being persecuted throughout the world. It's happened. We seem to think it hasn't happened here because this nation has been so blessed by God. We've spent most of our history as a nation at least standing up for what is right. Not anymore. We're beginning to reap the fruits of that. These school shootings. It's because righteousness doesn't reign anymore. You don't think this is going to happen here? Well, I say, look past your next piece of entertainment. Pick your head up from your smartphone. Take your head off the Netflix. And look outside for a minute. Look into history for a minute. Look at other parts of the world for a minute. And you'll see that they're coming. In fact, read your Bible. I've been reading Ezekiel and I keep going, I can't help but think that this is going to happen here too, Lord. You're doing it this to your people. You're saying that your people are going to be taken by the famine, by the sword, and they're going to die. And you're warning them with Ezekiel. And this is your own people. Why wouldn't it happen here? Why would we be immune? That's foolishness. The fool says in his heart, I, I can do this and get away with it. And what happens? Eventually they don't. You'll see that being prepared begins in the house of God, but it doesn't end there. It extends to all other areas of life. We don't need to start a war as believers, but we do need to be prepared to fight in one when it comes, not if anymore. There's always a spiritual war, and that spiritual war will spill over into the physical at some point. I'm not saying you need to be commandos. I'm not saying you need to join a militia. I'm just saying you need to be prepared for when it does come. Because Abram arms the trained servants. You know that he had specific servants who were trained for battle. Just like the kings had soldiers, he had servants who, well, these guys were young and strong and probably warriors, and he gave them the appropriate training. But so was Abram. He goes with them, it says, that he goes with them. But he trains only the ones who were born in his house. That these servants were more like family. They were personally invested in the cause of Abram because it was their cause as well. They wouldn't be a mercenary and turn to another king if the other king paid them more. That their families are born in his house. But they would fight with their lives for the cause of Abram because he was, he was their leader. He was their master. And I think and I see that so many Christians turn back when the battle comes because they were not born in the house of their master. They might, maybe, maybe they're born again, maybe they're not. But they weren't personally invested with their entire lives. 
they saved a return trip, so to speak. There's this movie, Gattaca, about these brothers in the future, and it's like a genetic dystopia. But they're swimming, and the one brother was genetically perfect, and he swam halfway, and the other brother, who was genetically imperfect, swam out, and they didn't know how they could make it across the other way. And at the end of the movie, the genetically imperfect brother saves the perfect genetic brother. He's like, I don't know how you did it. And the imperfect brother says, I didn't save anything for the return trip. It's too loud, buddy. I didn't save anything for You were always saving something for the return trip because you could go back and live your life because you had all the right things. But I never saved anything for the return trip because I knew I couldn't go back. John 6, 6 63 through 68 says, It is spirit who gives life and the flesh profits nothing. The words I speak to you are spirit. And they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe. And who would, who would betray him. And he said, therefore, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by his father. And from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked um, with him no more. And Jesus turned to the twelve and said, do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. That Peter knew, and his whole life was invested in this, that this was the Messiah he was looking for, that he left his job, he left his home. This was it. This was the truth. Where else could he go? And I'm afraid that a lot of believers don't believe that deeply. They think, oh, if this Christian thing doesn't work out, I'll just go back to doing the Catholic thing, or I'll just go back to doing Sunday, Wednesday, or I'll just go back to my career. I'll just go back and do what I used to do and maybe I'll still go to church and read my Bible, but no, our whole, our whole life needs to be invested because Christ died for us. To give Him anything less is not only a, a, a dishonor to Him, but it's a disservice to ourselves, to those around us. The only way to make it in this life, Jesus said what? Is to lose it. But Abram said he divided his forces by night. That Abram had some military tactics here. He divided, he surrounded, he ambushed, he attacked under the cover of darkness. That's wise. That's not, you know, that's a real military tactic out there. That Abram had night vision because he spent time with God in the light. He knew how to see in darkness because God was his light. Psalm 144 one says, A Psalm of David, Blessed be the Lord my rock who trains my hands for war. My fingers for battle. Oh, God is a peaceful God. Well, God, yes, desires peace, but he also meets out judgment. And David was a warrior, and David said, I'm a warrior because, God, you have trained my hands and my fingers. That these guys, these warriors, are out there doing the right thing. Sometimes the only answer to violence, I'm sorry, is violence. We can try and negotiate. We can try and do the right thing, but at some point, you have to go in with violence. We were watching this movie last night about uh, an embassy that was took over in 1980 in England, and they try, they want they had the armies ready to go the whole time, but they kept negotiating, 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 and finally the the terrorists killed somebody at the end. And they're like, "That's it. We have to go in now. Yeah. We're not going to play around anymore. We can't let anyone else die." And I have to wonder should they have gone in the beginning and not even let that first person die? But then you know you got the whole weight of the whole situation, so many variables. But sincerely, at some point, violence is the only answer. Violence isn't wrong. It's how we use it. But it says that they pursued as far as Damascus. That's all the way up in Syria. That's quite the journey. They attacked and pursued as far as was necessary. They didn't stop short, and they took out the threat. And all too often, we stop short in our pursuit of righteousness. Like Saul in our disobedience, oh, well, God told me to kill everybody, but I'm going to keep these guys aside, I'm going to kick the king aside, and I'm going to offer. And Samuel says, God's taking the king away from you. You can't do this as king. You have to go all the way. If we don't take all our antibiotics, guess what? The infection will come back and it will be stronger. You know, there's that joke about the 99.9% effective antibacterial lotion. Well, what about that 0.1% bacteria? He must be pretty angry and he's pretty strong because all his other friends were killed out and that last one was there. Uh, but sincerely, they went all the way. But we must pursue those we love and attack evil as far and as long as it takes. And the church has given up and the world has given up on fighting evil and the world has said, let's embrace evil because it's easier. Let's allow evil to come into our country because it's easier. 
And really, because we're evil and there's no difference between us and, and the other evil, you have your evil, I have my evil, so let's be evil together. That's why crime is so bad. Because our society doesn't pursue it as far as it needs to go. It doesn't give it the death penalty. If there's no fear of ultimate judgment, then of course you can wait out. We just read at the end of that movie, it said that one of the terrorists, who was the murderer, got parole in 2008. Well, now he's out. You know, do you think he's happy? Do you think he's out doing the same thing again? I don't know, but sincerely, I don't think that's justice. But Abram goes out and he brings back everything. The stolen goods from Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot and his family's possession, all the women and the people. But the men were slain and they were afraid and they fled and they, because they were unprepared for battle and they left everyone else invulnerable. And look at society today. The enemy wants men to be slain, scattered, unprepared, called as unworthy to rule, unfit to fight, spiritually, emotionally, and physically. Because that leaves society unprepared. Fine. If a woman wants to join the army, fantastic. You know, I think that's. I think in some sense that's a noble cause. But why should she have to? You want equality? Well, how about you are better than men and you don't have to go to war. You can stay home and not have to go to that awful place of war that I can't even dream about. I'd much rather. I wouldn't want Jacob to go to war, but I'd rather him have to go to war than Mia because I think that that would be noble for him as a man. But do you think a society that can, can stand like that for much longer? What's left of the society? There's nothing left holding it together. It's about to crumble. You know what? God's going to allow it to. Why wouldn't he? It's not his anymore. We've disavowed him, so why would he ever? Well, he has grace and mercy and he wants to reach people. But he might let them be captive like Lot. You know, he's being patient because of us, I believe, the remnant of the land. But one day, just like in the end times, we're going to have to flee to the mountain, so to speak, because the battle will be too great. But God will provide for us, even if that day comes in our lifetime. But if Abram delayed, they might never have caught them. That time is of the essence in the valley. They might never have recovered everything. They might never have caught up with them. They might have experienced huge losses and casualties in people and possessions if they didn't strike now and strike fast and strike hard and go all the way. We see that in war. The war in Afghanistan was dragging out for years and years because we wouldn't do it the right way. And now the, the, the Pentagon has the power to fight the war that they want to fight it with the commanders on the ground. And they're experiencing victory. But we don't hear that because it's not the agenda that they want to push. We're getting lots of victories over there because they're able to fight the war the way war needs to be fought. Brutally and hard and fast. You know, if we give North Korea 10 years to catch up to us, six months and we keep telling them that we're coming over there, well, of course they're going to be prepared. Of course weapons of mass destruction will be hidden and gone and not found because we gave them six months to get rid of them. The world doesn't get it. And I'll get off my political soapbox there. But in spiritual, the same way. If we don't take spiritual battle seriously and to the end, it's going to be worse. If we let sin linger in our lives, it doesn't get better. It doesn't get better on its own. It gets worse. It turns into an abscess. But look at the destruction of our land and the church. Leaders unwilling to lead and obey, unwilling to fight for what's right, unwilling to forgive, to stand up and rescue their captive brother. Oh, the shame that is ours as the church. We are already defeated if we do not stand up for our own. Verse 17 says, And the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheba, that is, the king's valley, after his return from the, the feet of Shardalomer and the kings who were with him. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high, and he blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. That the king of Sodom now returns to the Valley of Kings. I picture him crawling out from under his rock. You know, kind of slimy, kind of creepy, like, hey, you know, I'm back now. Now that Abram's handled it, I'm back. And Melchizedek comes out. My king is Zedek. That's what it, you know, it's a good name, obvious name. 
Um, but King of Salem, the King of Peace, future Jerusalem, which was the west of this area, he comes out with gifts. You know, it's, it's not the case, but I wonder if Zedek was a word for God. My king is God, perhaps. But he comes out with a feast, with bread and wine, with communion, with fellowship. Isn't this a picture of Christ? We won't get into the, the, the topic of this guy actually being a Christophany of, of Jesus in the Old Testament. I mean, I think it would make a lot of sense, um, especially if you see, you know, as our study of Genesis, God and man, God loving to be with man here and be with Abram. Um, but we're not going to get into that for, the, for this case. But he had provisions to bring Abram. That those who are of God always have provision with them. That the provision of the people of God will never go stale. We saw those guys who tricked, uh, I think it was Joshua, to make a pact with them, come out and they pretended to be from far away. They had tattered clothes, they had worn old, old shoes on, and they brought stale bread to make it seem like they came from far away to make a, pa- a pact with him so he wouldn't attack them. You know, but that's the world, you know, playing tricks. But God's people, whether it's a word God gave you 10 years ago or two years ago or last week, it's always fresh. It's always perfect provision for the time. But Salem uh, was not a part of the battle that I'm aware of. You know, it wasn't part of the territories that was going on there. But this king comes out anyway. You know, like Joshua, when he's before battle, God appears to him and he wonders whose side this commander is on. And he says, I'm not on either of your sides. You know, but that we must be on God's side. The king of Salem wasn't on any other side other than God's side. And that was the side that Abram wanted to be on. He didn't pick. It was 4 verse 5. Abram could have gone, evened it up, 5 verse 5. He could have gone 6 verse 4 and tilted the other direction. But he waited to be on God's side, to step in when it was time for Abram to step in. And that provision is always found in the pursuit of peace. That we find provision in life when we f- pursue peace with our coworkers, with our boss, with our family, with our friends, with our government. When we pursue that peace, God's provision is in there. We don't need to go out and fight a war for ourselves. But it says that Abram ties to this man. That Abram knew that this guy was a priest of God. That this king had a relationship with God. It's obvious, by the way, this guy comes out. But this is before the Mosaic Law. This is before tithing. This is before offerings. This is before communion. Before Passover. And yet, what are they celebrating? The same thing. That God has defended us from our enemy. And that's communion. God, your body and your blood have defended us from the enemy, from sin and from death. Hebrews 7 talks about Jesus being the order from the order of Melchizedek. I won't read it for time. That Jesus came from the tribe of Judah. Judah wasn't the, the priestly line. But he was king and priest. And Abram knew who the credit belonged to, and that was one and only God. And he was willing, without question, without being asked, to give back to God. Like I said, tithing was a Mosaic law, yet Abram did it by the Spirit before the law was written. The law was written, why? Because we're sinful, and because we need to be directed to the right thing. But you know what? Before the law was, the Spirit was. Abram knew who went into battle before him, behind him, was his front and rear guard, and that was God. The king of Salem, as king and priest, made it publicly known of Abram's private spiritual life. The public ministry is always the outpouring of the private life. Abram didn't need to come back and proclaim his own greatness. I'm the king of nations, like that guy title. But the king of Salem comes out and proclaims how great Abram is because Abram knows the great God. Public proclamation should encourage private devotion. But true public proclamation cannot exist without private devotion. And I think, and I believe, and sadly the true, that the church loses publicly today because it is not strong privately, because it is weak personally. The church fights itself today because it is unwilling to defend its brothers and sisters yesterday. The church is weak and dying today because it didn't stand up for the truth yesterday. But the real people of God will thrive and prosper and continue to win despite what the church at large is doing, despite what the, the, the situations and the, wherever they live are, because God is their hope. God is their provision. There will always be a remnant, and God will always use them to bless those who are lost and defeated. And I know we're going to go a little bit long, but I just want to finish this. The king of Sodom, here he tries to pay off Abram. But Abram didn't go out to fight the king of Sodom's battles. King of Sodom didn't email Abram and say, hey, I'll give you 10,000 bucks if you go out and do this. Abram went out to fight the king of Sodom's battle, even though it wasn't wasn't his battle. Because 
even though it was technically the king of Sodom's fault that Lot was taken, but he went out fighting the king of Salem's battle to rescue his brother. But even the king of Sodom benefited from Abram stepping up and doing what the rest should have been done, um, doing in their own authority. And a lot of times those in authority, either by title or position, aren't always the ones with the real power. The ones with the real authority are evident by how they win the battle, even when that battle isn't theirs. Verse 21 to the end says, Now then the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread of a sandal strap, that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich, except only what the young men have eaten, and the portion of the men who went with me, Aner, Eshel, and Mamre, and let them take their portion. Abram knew that giving anyone other than God the glory and the credit would backfire on him spiritually and physically. And more importantly, I think, to Abram was that he knew it would be robbing God of the credit. He knew at this point, God is the only one who's done this. Look where I came from. Look at the messes I got in. God is the one who's made me brave. But if the king of this wicked city could take any credit in Abram's victory, it wouldn't be a victory for God. So often God wins our battles and we fail to give him credit. And we end up being a slave to the king who has no authority. We needn't, get, we needn't be greedy. In our victories, in our spiritual victories, we need to look to God for our reward. Oh, no one, no one saw this. No one took care of this. Well, God will take care of it. Like Jesus said, Take heed, you don't do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward. But, man, do it in the secret, and God will reward you openly. And in this, Abram still makes sure his people are cared for. He doesn't foist his faith on his servants and his friends. Well, I'm not going to take anything from the king of Sodom, so you guys can't take anything from the king of Sodom, so no way. He just says, no, no, no. I know who my God is. I don't want anything from you. God's my provision. God's my reward. But my friends, they fought with me. They fought hard. The young men who stood up and risked their lives, he doesn't even say my servants. He says the young men, you can give them what they need. They can take what they want from you. That's fine but I'm not going to take anything from you. And he uses the things of the world to bless his friends that they might be blessed by his faith. You know, think about a friend who's on a diet and they thrust it on you. Well, I can't, you know, if my wife and I, I can't have ice cream, so you can't have ice cream either. You know, wouldn't you make that a little, wouldn't that make you a little bitter against the diet and against the friend? Man, I just want, I'm going to go home and eat ice cream. Man, I don't want to hang out with them. But so too we, when we share our faith, shouldn't force that on others. You know, when I'm out with friends with work and they want to drink, okay, I don't drink. I'm not going to say, well, I'm not drinking, so you guys can't drink. Yeah, you know, if they get, like, really loopy, then I'll, you know, I'll say, okay, I'll see you guys later. But I'm not going to foist it on them and force it on them and make them have a bad taste in their mouth. Instead, I'm going to let the spirit work. Let them see that, wow, there is such a life without drinking. There is such a happiness without that. If they don't see it, they don't see it, but at least they don't get a bad taste in their mouth. At least I can maybe be prepared to share with them something one day. And have that relationship with them. And have that point of contact with them that I'm willing to hang out with them. Because why shouldn't I be? Abram was prepared, but Lot was taken captive. The king of Sodom was overrun, but the king of Salem, Salem overflowed. Are we Abram? Or are we Lot? Who do we give credit to? Do we give credit to Sodom or to Salem? We need to give credit to where credit is due. We also need to be prepared in the mountaintop, under the terebinth tree, because when the valley does come, we need to be ready to go and rescue others before it's too late. There's this quote from A.W. Tozer I read a couple weeks ago that says, Our identification with Christ should be that whatever he is, we also want to become. And I think Abram was becoming like the one he knew. This, uh, the king of Salem says, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, and blessed be God Most High, that Abram and God Most High had a close relationship. And God is a warrior for what is right, and so we should be too. Father, uh, thank you for working in Abram's life and bringing him to faith. Thank you for using him and showing him and being patient with him and rescuing Lot, using him to rescue Lot and 
be a witness to these nations that even as Sodom and Gomorrah would fall soon. I know that you were using this to show them the king of Salem and that God could be their provision, but they didn't turn. But God, help us to be like Abram and dwell where you dwell. We're a blessing to others who stand up for what's right and are willing to fight. But help us more than that. Be willing to just spend time with you and know you, God. And prepare us in the mountaintop. Prepare us now. We ask God that when the valley comes in our life or in the lives of others, we might be prepared to come alongside them and to go as far as it takes to, to bring them back and to bring them to faith to you that they might sit at your feet and have communion, God. So we love you, God. Bless our night, God. Thank you for loving us, God. Come soon, we pray. And God, please um, have your way in your church in these last days. Bless your church. Bless your people. Bring faith back. Bring brotherly love back. Bring unity back, God. Bring division where it's needed. But God, so much of the division, I believe, is, is, is kings being kings instead of being subject to our one true king, the possessor of heaven and earth, God. So have your way, God. We lift you up in Jesus' name. Amen.